From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. of the world's disease burden requires some sort of surgical decision-making. Despite this fact, access to surgery is not commonly considered along with other important global health issues like treatments for infectious disease or cleaning up environmental pollution. On today's episode, Dr. Mark Schreim talks about the history of surgery in global health and why this important specialty is often not at the forefront of policymaking, despite its potential impact. Dr. Schreim is an assistant professor of otolaryngology and of global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. He serves as the research director at the program in global surgery and social change at Harvard Medical School. He is also a practicing surgeon at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. His work centers on studying the cost barrier in low and middle income countries to people receiving surgical treatment. Hello, Dr. Schreim. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You spend a couple of months out of the year doing surgery in low-income countries, but that wasn't your initial plan. Can you tell us a bit about your career path and how you came to do this? Yeah, so I never wanted to be a doctor. Um, I, growing up, I, I wanted to be a linguist, uh, or I wanted to be a philosopher or a musician, but I'm the firstborn son of an immigrant family, and so I had a few options only available to me. I could, I could do medicine, I could do law, or I could do engineering. I liked biology, um, so I went into the sciences and then went to, to med school and uh, really didn't enjoy it, really hated medical school. Uh, but you know, I, I, I did it. I took a year off thinking I would maybe try a different career. I went to teach in Singapore for a year. Absolutely loved that. Almost actually applied for permanent residency in Singapore, probably just to get away from med school. Um, but then went back, kind of chickened out on the permanent residency, went back to med school. Uh, finished my med school, and and uh, in searching for a specialty, uh, I'll be honest, I wanted to find a specialty where I could work as little as possible and make as much money as possible so I could do all the other things that I wanted to do uh, with my life. Uh, so I chose ENT. Turns out that's the wrong reason to choose a specialty. Um, and the first few years of my ENT residency, also, I, I really didn't enjoy them. Uh, and then you know, the way my ENT residency was structured, we didn't get our cancer experience until later on in our residency. But once I got the cancer, sort of the head and neck cancer experience, that's when all of a sudden things started to kind of come together. I really enjoyed the surgeries. I really enjoyed the patient population. I enjoyed the science behind it. So that's where I was going to go. Did a fellowship in surgical oncology and then took a year off after that first fellowship Spent six months out of that year working as a surgeon in Liberia on a hospital ship with an organization called Mercy Ships. And it was it was those six months, the first time walking down uh, to the third deck of the ship where the hospital was and seeing all these head and neck patients when it all kind of came together. And I, I had this sort of overwhelming feeling of, oh my gosh, this is what the last 15 years were for. Uh, went back to fellowship. I did a second fellowship in reconstructive surgery after that, but with the desire to now work in low-income countries. Uh, So finished that fellowship, got a job here uh, in Boston, 
and continued to go back to work in on that ship in Sub-Saharan Africa every year after that. Uh, after about three years of working in as a sort of full-time clinical attending, uh, I was having a conversation with a gentleman that's kind of become a mentor to me. We were talking about things unrelated to choice of life careers, but but he said a line that I now say to anybody who asks me for advice. He said, when I'm thinking about a decision in my life, uh, I look 30 years down the line to the best possible outcome of that decision. And if that best possible outcome makes me think, well, then it's not the thing for me. Uh, I don't know if he actually remembers this conversation, but I went back to my career back here after that time in, in Sub-Saharan Africa and started looking at what the next 30 years would hold. And this is not at all to disparage uh, clinical medicine, but for me, I looked at the next 30 years of being a surgeon, uh, full-time only clinical surgeon, and and thought, okay, well, I'll have treated you know thousands of patients, and some will have done well, some will not have done well, and then I'll retire. And that didn't inspire me. Um, that didn't make me think, wow, this is what's going to get me up in the morning. And that's when I knew that I had to make a, a change, uh, but that's a terrifying thing to do. Um, but after three years, I, I quit full-time clinical practice. I now uh, see patients one day a week uh, here in the States, and I do still spend two months out of the year working as a surgeon in sub-Saharan Africa. But after quitting practice, I went back to get a PhD, to do a PhD in health policy, and my dissertation focused on surgery in low-income countries, kind of trying to get the entirety of my life and not just a couple of weeks out of the year to focus on this, this problem of surgery in low-income countries. Why is surgery an important global health issue, and how has it been viewed historically? 30% of the world's disease burden requires some sort of surgical decision-making at some point in the disease course. That is three times as much as HIV, TB, and malaria combined. Uh, surgery has been... It's been viewed, I think, as the purview of the rich. You know, it's an expensive thing to do. It's complex. You require all sorts of infrastructure. And there's so much more bang for our buck that we can get with other global health interventions. But I think that's, uh, I think that's been a fallacy. Because if I, if I walked up to you and I said, hey, I founded my own country, and I'm currently working on designing the health system for the country. And I think I can keep my entire population healthy without doing surgery. You'd ask me what I was smoking. And yet that's kind of the way we viewed surgery in the purview of global health, which is that, well, it's this nice icing on the cake add-on that we can get to later. Uh, when 17 million people die every year from surgical conditions, one person every two seconds dies of a surgical condition. So, so this is actually a necessity. It's not just something we can do when we kind of feel like coming around to it. Surgeons have been involved in global health from the very beginning. You can go back into the the, the beginning of sort of modern global health, back when the missionaries and the merchants were doing their their global health stuff, and there have been surgeons involved in global health forever. But what we as surgeons have tended to do is either kind of fly in and fly out, do a little bit of surgery and leave, or we've tended to become these, for lack of a better word, become these missionary surgeons that stay in a country for 30 years and you never really sort of hear about them. What we haven't done is tell our story well. And there is a story here. I mean, there's a story in, in the patients that I see in, in Sub-Saharan Africa with the large facial tumors uh, that 
can't work, that uh, are not economically productive members of society, that can't find uh, spouses, can't have children uh, simply because of this tumor that can be taken out with a one-hour procedure. We haven't really told that story. We haven't captured the uh, imagination of, of people. So I can say things like 30% of the world's disease burden requires surgical decision-making, and that's true, but also kind of a dry fact. And I think we haven't done that advocacy well yet. If you look at the mentions of international health or global health in books, uh, starting in about 1880, there's kind of this rise of interest in international health or global health as a, as a field. Uh, and that rise starts in sort of 1880, kind of peters along until World War I and then World War II again. And in world, right around World War I, World War II, there's these spikes in interest in international health, interest measured as the number of times it's mentioned in a book. That th Those spikes peak in 1948 with the founding of the WHO. And when the WHO is founded, its constitution defines health as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not just the absence of disease or infirmity. So it defines health as in this really broad way, which should include surgery. And there have been surgeons working in global health up until this time. It should include surgery. But actually what happens in the very constitution of the WHO, just two or three lines down from that broad ecumenical definition of health, health is narrowed to communicable disease and the healthy development of the child. So we've got this aspirational statement of what health should be, but then officialdom in global health moves towards communicable disease and the healthy development of the child, which are very important, and also to some degree low-hanging fruit, because you can treat communicable disease with a pill you can manufacture that pill in the U.S., in the U.K., in India, and just bring that pill in and of itself to the person. The problem with surgery is that you have to bring the entire means of production to the patient. And that, I think, made it a lot more difficult, uh, made it easier to view surgery as this thing that we can do later. Um, that didn't mean that surgeons weren't involved in global health. They were still working in global health, as I was saying before. But this divide between officialdom in global health and surgery, I think, actually deepened uh, in 1978. So 1978, the WHO passes the Alma-Ata Declaration, in which they declare that health is a human right. But then, so again, really broad, ecumenical, huge thing, health is a human right. But then Alma-Ata says that the way we deliver health as a human right to people is through primary care. So again, we take this broad thing and narrow it down that excludes surgery. This has obviously changed. There's been a huge broadening in the WHO's mandate, and there is a section of the WHO that focuses on surgery. But there's now this move, there's this recognition that countries are going through what's been called the epidemiologic transition, where low-income countries have moved from being primarily dominated by infectious diseases to primarily dominated by non-communicable diseases. And... Now there's this move. Uh, recently, there was a paper published just recently in The Lancet uh, to rename non-communicable diseases to something like socially communicable diseases to underscore the fact that things like heart disease, obesity, diabetes, et cetera, are communicable in the networks, the social networks that we live in, which is also very true. But what that does, once again, is it narrows the definition of non-communicable disease to things like diabetes, obesity, hypertension, et cetera, and shifts the surgical diseases, which are not necessarily socially communicable. You don't get appendicitis from being next to people who have appendicitis. 
shifts it again out of the conversation. And I think that has been a constant struggle in this in this field. I think this this fact that surgery requires bringing the entire means of production to the patient, it has been our Achilles heel, but I actually think it's the reason that we should be focusing on surgery. So if you think about it the other way, if we fix the oxygen, the water, the electricity, the suction, the training, the sterilization, et cetera, that's needed in a hospital to do surgery, well, all of a sudden you fixed all that stuff for the hospital. So I think, and I say I think because this is a hypothesis of ours, but we haven't proved it yet, but I think there are some significant knock-on effects that you can get from focusing on surgery that will impact the health system in general and not just the surgical system in a way that making a pill and bringing it to somebody doesn't necessarily do. What are the barriers in low-income countries for people to receive surgical care, and how does that compare to the U.S.? There are a lot of barriers in low- and middle-income countries to receiving surgical care. Uh, There are some of the more obvious ones. So cost, if you ask people why they don't don't get surgery, 73% will tell you that cost is their primary barrier. So cost is a huge barrier. Uh, there is the lack of a, a workforce, lack of a surgical workforce. There's lack of trust in the surgical workforce, trust in the quality, trust in the safety, and trust in the affordability uh, of it. So those two tie together. Uh, there are problems related uh, to the fact that a lot of surgeons in low- and middle-income countries, and I'm obviously generalizing a lot here, but a lot of surgeons in low- and middle-income countries live in kind of the larger cities, and so the distance that people have to travel is huge, and that comes with its attendant costs of paying for that transportation. Uh, in some surgical specialties, this is true, for example, in ophthalmology with cataracts. In some places, there's even just a, sort of a lack of awareness that surgery can fix the problem that you have, that if I get surgery, I can see again. Uh, so we've, we've got a lot of barriers um, to overcome. These barriers are, are not just limited to low and middle income countries. These, some of these same barriers occur in the US as well. We have, there's evidence that uh, patients, the potential patients in the US are not using care because of cost. There's been evidence over and over and over again in publication after publication uh, that if you lower the cost burden on individuals that uh, that utilization, at least initially, goes up, which means there is some pent-up latent demand uh, for care in individuals. And that pent-up latent demand actually does translate into health impact. We published a paper, uh, this was uh, with John Scott, who's currently uh, a resident at the, at the Brigham, and published a paper that looked at the dependent care provision in Obamacare. The dependent care provision is the thing that allowed kids to stay on their parents' insurance up until the age of 26, whereas pre-Obamacare is up until the age of 19. So there's this group of people, seven years from 19 to 26, who didn't have insurance pre-Obamacare and then all of a sudden had insurance pre-Obamacare. And we looked to see if that actually had an effect on appendicitis outcomes. And it did. There was a sort of immediate and sustained decrease in perforated appendicitis for people who are on the dependent care provision uh, versus people who weren't eligible for it, people who are just above the age of 26. So these barriers exist here just as much as they exist in sub-Saharan Africa. Can you talk about your current research and how it relates to this problem of access to surgery? So my particular interest is in the, the cost barrier, but my interest is in the hidden costs, the costs, for example, of transportation that 
we tend not to view as a medical cost. The response for a lot of hospitals and, and ministries of health when when you say, well, surgery is really expensive, the response is to say, well, let's make surgery free or let's make surgery super cheap. This is helpful for sure, uh, but it's a, it is small beans um, because a lot of the costs that patients face are not actually the cost of making the incision and in a C-section, making the incision, getting the baby out. It's the cost of the medications, the cost of uh, the radiology, the cost of transportation, et cetera, that, that really impact patients. So my interest is in those non-medical costs and also the interplay between poverty and surgery. And the interplay ha happens in two directions. It happens in the obvious direction where if you're poor, it's harder for you to get surgery. But my interest is in the, actually the opposite direction, which is that these costs can actually impoverish patients. So patients are ending up making this choice between their health and their financial security. And this is something that, that does again, does not just happen in low-income countries. I uh, have a paper in review right now that tries to quantify this choice in the U.S. Because in the U.S., 62% of bankruptcy is due to medical costs. So again, just here, just as much as in low-income countries, here we're making this choice between going to seek care and risking impoverishment, risking bankruptcy, or not seeking care, remaining financially solvent, but also risking worse, worse outcomes. Uh, what I have brewing right now is a project that... Uh, will address this kind of hidden cost of transportation. What we've been finding e is even when you make surgery free, I work this NGO that I've been working with for for nine years now. You know the no-show rate, depending on the country and the setting, the no-show rate for surgery that is free can be as high as fifty percent. And if you follow up with patients who don't show up for their surgery and ask them why they didn't show up about half of them will tell you that uh, the cost of getting to the hospital was what was what stopped them. Uh, another large subgroup will also tell you that they just needed to be on their farms. They would lose income if they if they left for their for their surgery. So even though the surgery is free, there's a huge financial barrier. The project that I have brewing now is a randomized controlled trial to address that. So the surgery itself will remain free for all the patients that are coming. Uh, and we'll be employing what's called a cash transfer. Um, and there are two flavors, which I'll talk about in a second. But a cash transfer essentially is, I will give you money. And this has been used successfully in global health for things like malaria bed nets, things like coming back to get your HIV test results after you've had your blood drawn. And what I hope to do is randomize patients into, into three different arms. One, they still get their free surgery. The second arm, this cash transfer is conditional. So if you make it for your surgery we'll pay you back your transportation. So you still have to front the money to make it there, but we'll pay you back your transportation. The third arm is what's called an unconditional labeled cash transfer, where a week or so before your surgery is your surgery date, I will text you the money. I'll SMS you the money. Mobile banking is pretty large in sub-Saharan Africa. So I'll SMS you the money, and it'll be labeled. It'll say, this is for your transportation to your operation. But there'll be absolutely no condition on how you use that. You could use it to pay for your kid's school fees instead. And I'm curious to see, I, I, I don't, I'm pretty sure that those two arms will increase utilization above the, the control arm, but I'm actually unsure of which of those two arms is going to be actually more effective. 
Can you tell us more about Mercy Ships? Mercy Ships has been around for almost 40 years. But their, their model is non-traditional in that they build and maintain hospital ships. Their current flagship is a ship called the Africa Mercy, which is a converted Danish rail ferry. They bought the Danish rail ferry. They stripped it down, put a hospital into it. Uh, it's about 500 feet long. It's eight decks tall. One of the decks is the hospital. And, you know, we live on the ship. We work on the ship. We eat on the ship. We sleep on the ship. Your entire life is on the ship, uh, which is great. The, my commute to work in the morning is 45 seconds. Uh, this this model is interesting in that different from a land-based hospital, you are, because because your entire infrastructure is on this ship, you aren't necessarily reliant on the electrical grid of the country, the water supply of the country. Uh, you bring that all with you, uh, which would be horrible, honestly, I think, if the ship kind of sailed in and sailed out every couple of weeks. But what the ship does is it stays in country for one to two years at a time, which gives uh, us a lot of opportunity to A, do a lot of surgery, uh, and B, do complex surgeries, surgeries that would require planned multiple revisions, or even surgeries that, in which that's not planned and patients have complications, we're there to take care of the complications. So it allows that clinical uh, um, aspect to happen, but it also allows a significant amount of interaction with the Ministry of Health and with the surgeons, the anesthesiologists, the nurses in country. Uh, we're involved in a, a quite a lot of training, both on the ship and then going out into the, the rest of the countries that we're in. We're involved in infrastructure development, uh, in either building or more, more often uh, refurbishing hospitals that are in the port cities that we're in. And we're also moving into this idea, which is from the other part of my life in the program in global surgery here at Harvard, is building national surgical plans for countries. So countries have plans for HIV. They kind of know where they are with HIV right now. They know where they want to be in five years. But in a lot of countries, surgery happens in the shadows. Ministers of health can't tell you how much money they're spending on surgery or how many surgeries are being done. And if surgery continues to happen in the shadows, then it's never going to get better. And so this plan put forward by the Lancet Commission on Global Surgery is that the way to fix surgery is to start doing that, is to start actually planning surgery into your health plan. So because the ship is in country for a year or two, we can work on the data collection necessary for that, work on beginning the, the processes uh, to do that as well. On the face of it, there's a downside to that, which is that we dock in the big cities, which are the cities that have the surgeons and the anesthesiologists in them. And over the course of the nine years that I've been working with the organization, there's been a genuine shift, a genuine recognition that that is a problem and a genuine shift in our patient finding, our case finding strategy that puts a real focus on getting patients that are from further afield. That then gets to what I was talking about before though, is that the patients then have a longer way to travel. Uh, and this sets up this dichotomy, which is, which is where this RCT that I'll be doing next year uh, speaks into. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Shrime. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.